We're going to read from Ezra 3, a time when the people there really knew how to lift up their voices in praise and jubilation. Ezra 3, uh, verses 10 through 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to the praise of the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and its instruction in our lives. I pray that you would guard us from error, help us to discern truth from error, very clearly help us to glory in your word, the sufficiency of your scripture, and I pray that you would bless this, your people, that each one of us would grow today as a result of having heard your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to the last three historical books of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And I do not believe that you can properly interpret any one of those three without the other two. Uh, they are interwoven with each other, and they provide the interpretive framework for each other. And they're tightly interwoven with the three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You need to keep those three linked uh, with these three books. And those all occur during the same general period of time. Now, I'll be right up front with you that the position I'm going to be presenting to you today is a minority position among evangelicals. It's definitely not the establishment position. Thankfully, uh, Creation Ministries International and there's quite a number of other organizations have been writing amazingly good studies defending the biblical chronology but I just want you to be aware it's not the establishment position. You won't find it in the NIV study Bible. You won't find it in your New Geneva uh, uh, study Bible or the Reformation Bible. Most of the modern uh, study Bibles are completely uh, mess up on the chronology of these uh, three books. And uh, I'll deal with that controversy in a bit. But almost all biblical chronologists over the last several hundred years would take issue with the current establishment position. I think you need to know that up front. Now you might wonder why I don't take Ezra and Nehemiah as one book, like uh, some of the study Bibles do. I can understand where they are coming from, but I have quite a number of reasons why I see them as two separate books written by two separate authors. I won't get into those reasons other than the most obvious one, that when you turn over just a few chapters forward to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it is quite clear Nehemiah wrote every word of the book of Nehemiah, and yet to hold to the theory that they're one book, you cannot believe that Nehemiah wrote all of Nehemiah. You cannot believe that. That's essential to that view. But what does uh, Nehemiah 1 verse 1 say? It says, The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, 
In the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who would escape, who would survive the captivity concerning Jerusalem. Anyway, he goes on, and he continues to use the personal uh, first-person uh, pronouns I, me, my, I, 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 in every verse of this uh, book, through to the end of this book, it is the same person who is writing those words, with the exception of chapter 11, because uh, chapter uh, 11 is just a list of names. And so Ezra was written by Ezra, Nehemiah was written by Nehemiah. They're quite different books with different structures, different writing styles. I can prove all of that. I won't bore you with it this morning. And yet God in his marvelous providence was guiding both of these prophets to complement each other in their writing. And speaking of God's guidance of both prophets, I do want to comment on something very troubling in the Bible Project video for this book. Although the Bible Project videos are very helpful introductions to many of the books of the Bible, and I do recommend people uh, kind of look at, at uh, some of those, the video on Ezra and Nehemiah is very bad in its theology and its literary analysis. I think the video slanders Ezra and Nehemiah grossly and completely misunderstands the whole purpose for the writing of these two books. Uh, it's less than helpful. <laughs> it is a really problem video. Now having said that, there are some similarities between the two books. So there's an emperor who gives a decree for the building of the temple in Ezra. There is an emperor who gives a decree for the building of the walls in Nehemiah. And then immediately after this decree, there's opposition uh, from the enemies of uh, God's people. And then each book has a covenant renewal after the completion of the project. Each book is concerned with holiness. Okay, Ezra is concerned with holiness in the church. Nehemiah is concerned with holiness in society. And I think you would expect to see some of these commonalities in these books because they are occurring during a very similar time period, at least if you hold to my view rather than the establishment view of these books. Now, if you start reading establishment commentaries and study Bibles on Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to get very, very confused because a majority of them actually say that there are two scribes by the name of Ezra, two governors by the name of Nehemiah, two leaders by the name of Mordecai, and they are, those three sets of people are separated by 91 years. Um, and according to them, they just happen to have the same names, but they are not the same people. I know it sounds bizarre, but I'll explain to you in a little bit why they feel forced to this conclusion. And I'm giving you this background material because I think a fairly straightforward reading of Ezra and Nehemiah would be possible if you were not trying to force Ezra and Nehemiah into a standard secular chronology uh, that is out there. And uh, I, I need to clear this up. I hate dealing with these kind of controversies in, in sermons, but if I don't do this, uh, you're not going to benefit fully from the, the books of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Esther, Nehemiah. Uh, in order to apply them, we do have to go through these controversies. Now, my view is that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are tightly linked together, help to explain why the post-exilic prophets even wrote their books. For example, take a look at Ezra 2 and verse 2. 
This tells us the names of the leaders who came up with Zerubbabel from Babylon to Israel in that first huge migration. It says, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'ana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then it goes on to give a bunch of names that, interestingly, also appear in Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah 10, and Nehemiah chapter 12. <clears throat> so, this is a verse that gives major heartburn to uh, the establishment people, while it makes perfect sense to those of us who hold to a strictly biblical chronology. You see, in verse 2, we're immediately introduced to the big players of the three books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Zerubbabel, the name that's in there, he's the governor, governor of Israel in the first year of Cyrus. And so that connects this book tightly together with Haggai and Zechariah, both of which speak of Zerubbabel a great deal. The next name, Jeshua, was the high priest. Haggai 1, verse 1 talks about him. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3 talks about him. I believe he's a type of Jesus, interestingly. His name is the Hebrew spelling of Jesus, Yeshua. And notice the names Nehemiah and Mordecai occur in verse 2. Now, chronologists who start with the Bible as the only infallible chronology have absolutely no problem in concluding, hey, this is the same Nehemiah who wrote the book of Nehemiah. This is the same Mordecai who wrote the book of Esther. Uh, they are contemporaries of each other, and these books help to explain each other. Nehemiah 12, verses 1 through 7, insists that Ezra came up in this first migration to Jerusalem. By the way, verse 2 here mentions Sariah. Well, that's Ezra's father, according to chapter 7, verse 1. So even this verse, boring as it might be initially to you, is a, is a verse that knits the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together and form a very short chronology. But on the establishment view, that is not the case. They separate the two books by 91 years. Likewise, the long list of names in chapter 2 are said by them to be separated by 91 years from the identical names in Nehemiah 10. But then one of the problems that they have is that the same names also occur in Nehemiah 7 and Nehemiah 12, and those chapters specifically say those are the people who came up with Zerubbabel under the first year of Cyrus. So they have to deal with that. They've got to put 91 years between chapter 10 of Nehemiah and the other two chapters of Nehemiah. And uh, you'd never have guessed that would be the case if you weren't imposing a secular chronology on the story. Now here's the problem for even the establishment position. Since a 91-year gap makes for impossibly old ages for these people, when you get to Nehemiah chapter 10, for 20 of these 30 leaders, many establishment evangelicals claim they must be family names rather than names of individuals. The trouble is, Nehemiah 10 verse 1, which is the, the chapter in question, is explicitly dealing with individual names. Let me read that verse to you. It says, now those who placed their seal on the documents were, wow, I mean that sounds like real individuals who are going to place real seals on real documents, 
Now those who placed their seal on the documents were Nehemiah the governor. Is Nehemiah an individual? Well, yes, obviously so. And then comes a list of names that includes many of the names in the Ezra 2 list, and they each one place their seal on the documents that are before them. And there are establishment evangelicals who thankfully are very troubled by that kind of an interpretation. Now, they should be troubled. They recognize it's an artificial solution that is torturing the text, and so they come up with two alternative theories to try to maintain their long secular chronology and still have a semblance of an evangelical view of the scripture. Um, as I've already mentioned, the dominant theory is that there are two scribes with the name of Ezra and two governors by the name of Nehemiah. There was uh, one set that lived under Cyrus and Darius, another set who lived almost a century later under Artaxerxes Longamanus. Uh, and, and by the way, you might wonder about the pronunciation of Darius. I've been corrected quite a number of times when I say Darius, and then I switch to Darius, and I get corrected on that. There is no standard pronunciation. You can pronounce it as Darius, 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 and none of those are actually the Hebrew pronunciation. <laughs> Hebrew pronunciation is Daryaesh. Okay, and nobody pronounces it that way. So I've looked up on virtually every pronunciation guide in my commentaries and elsewhere. There is no standard. So the purists amongst you, sorry, there is no purist pronunciation. So don't get on my case if I switch from Darius to Darius. Another solution, okay, the first solution that they come up with, two different sets of Ezra and Nehemiah. Another solution some have come up with is to make Ezra 121 years old when he makes his four-month-long trip of 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem on foot, okay, and then 134 years old in Nehemiah 8 verse 1, and he seems to have the energy to be able to outwork a whole bunch of other people who are calling it quits for the day, and he wants to go on. Now, one problem that they don't notice when you read their explanations, oh yeah, God somehow made this guy energetic even in his old age, is that uh, chapter 11 mentions his dad is present too. And I would assume his dad is older than he is. So anyway, Ezra is 134 years old. They also have to make Nehemiah 143 years old. And they say somehow God gave them the strength to be able to do this. But given the fact that there's more than one trip that they make from Babylon to Jerusalem, it just seems extremely unlikely. And this is why the majority of evangelical scholars have opted for the double Ezra-Nehemiah theory. To them, it seems easier to believe that strange coincidence than to believe that Ezra-Nehemiah could be that old. I don't think there's any need to have an age problem or a double Nehemiah theory. Now, I will admit that if the two people's ages were the only objection that were out there, and if you were driven to reconcile this with secular chronology, okay, we'd just say God did a miracle, no problem. Uh, trouble is, uh, there are many other problems. It's not just that one. And the first and the most obvious problem is that Nehemiah 8, verse 17 says, so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Oops, <laughs> it's not just Nehemiah and Ezra and Ezra's dad who are ultra, ultra old. It's the whole assembly who is old. And many of those people were already old when they came in the first year of Cyrus. 
So again, this is just a real tough one for people. And yet the text says those who had returned from the captivity, not their children, but those who had returned from the captivity. Floyd Nolan Jones points out the problem. He says, such would be meaningless if 91 years had elapsed from Ezra 3-4 as nearly all the returnees would surely have died during the interim. Now he comes up with his own alternative explanation, which I don't agree with, uh, but it is a fascinating, very intriguing interpretation. He has a co-regency between Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and so he takes a different view of chapter 7 than I do. Um, and I have my reasons for not disagreeing, but he's the only alternative theory that I've read that takes seriously every verse of the scripture and the secular chronology at the same time. Uh, there are actually some verses that I think he messes up on. Here are some other problems. On the establishment view, people are forced to take chapters in Ezra as being out of order, hugely out of order, jumping back and forth by a century with absolutely no explanation. So on their interpretation, Ezra appears to be an incredibly sloppy writer. They are forced to put gaps in the genealogies, even though Ezra insists that there can be no gaps. Here's another problem. Take a look at verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it to writing. So Ezra claims that the decree of Cyrus was the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, and all evangelicals agree that the prophecy in Jeremiah that he's referring to is Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and then it's repeated again in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Well, here's the problem. Though there aren't, there, there really aren't, when you look at the passage, there is not enough years that transpire between the destruction of Jerusalem and the first year of Cyrus. Not enough years to add up to 70. And Jeremiah 25 explicitly says there are going to be 70 years. So um, one of my professors said, oh, no problem. He's just rounding, rounding up the numbers. Well, 50 is a round number, and why would you round 50 up to 70? That makes no sense whatsoever. And others say, well, it's an ideal number, it's not a, a literal number. Let me give you several reasons why this has to be a very precise number. First, in Zechariah 7, verse 5, the prophet told the post-exilic people, these are people already in the land of Israel, he told them, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, during those 70 years. So now he's not talking symbolically. He's speaking about a past accomplished event. He says, you know, during the past 70 years, when you fasted on these months, he's indicating this is a literal 70 years that he's talking about. And by the way, he does not start in 605 with Daniel's uh, exile. He starts with the destruction because in that passage, he times it with the fifth month when the temple burned and the murdering of Gedaliah on the seventh month. So that's what started the 70 years of that fasting. Now the NIV study Bible says, the 70 years here are to be reckoned from 586 BC. So they agree, it's very crystal clear, it starts with the destruction of Jerusalem, 586. Here's the problem, 586 minus 536, which is what they date Cyrus, is 50. It's just 20 years shy of 70. There is something messed up about the establishment chronology. Second, 
Second Chronicles 36.21 says that there would be one year in exile for every Sabbath year that Israel did not let the land lie follow. Seventy years total. That's not a round number. That counts every year. Third, when Jeremiah repeats his prophecy in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, he says, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Not rounded but completed. Fourth, Daniel 9 verse 2 says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he's doing his calculations and he realizes, whoa, we're in the 70th year. So he immediately begins to pray to God, Lord, would you now Fulfill that promise that you gave and restore the people to Jerusalem. And one of the requirements was repentance. So he repents on behalf of the people. Now here's the point. If he's doing calculations to try to figure out when the, when the 70 years ends, there's no way he could calculate if it was not an accurate number, if it was just a rounded number. But he is able to calculate it. And then God sends an angel and he says, the moment you started praying, the command to rebuild went forth. Who did the command come from? Cyrus. Okay, the command to rebuild was immediately sent forth. Now, on the interpretation of virtually every biblical chronologist of every stripe, it is exactly 70 years. On the establishment evangelical position, it is not, no matter where they start from. Even if they start from 605, that would uh, land six, 67 years. It's still got to be a rounded number. And the reason it is not is that they have rejected, uh, they've accepted one secular chronology as the standard, and they are force-fitting that into the Bible, into the secular chronology. They're ignoring very crystal clear chronology, inspired, infallible chronology that the Bible has laid out. So why do evangelicals do this? If you're a cynic, you could say it's because they have a lust for academic respectability, and there may be some out there who do that, but with most, they just start with the presupposition that the dates of Ptolemy are correct, and they try to reconcile everything with that presupposition. I think they're sincere, but this presupposition hinders them from seeing God's intention. They didn't start from the Bible. They started with secular chronology. And it's not as if they have not had constant warnings. Even as far back as Sir Isaac Newton, he did calculations of Ptolemy's records, and he said, Ptolemy's off. He is off on his calculations. And he was an astronomer every bit as, as gifted as Ptolemy was. But uh, many other people have done that. But here is the thing. It is such an enormous amount of work to overthrow what the establishment says. That for many people, it's just not worth it. They say, we'll just go with whatever the dates are that people set. We'll do the best job that we can interpreting within that. Who is this Ptolemy? Claudius Ptolemy was a second century AD astronomer who pulled together previous lists of kings using mathematical calculations of solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. He tried to establish a date for each Babylonian and Persian king. He was a pretty smart dude, and his calculations have been the standard for computing chronologies for a long time. It is the only secular chronology that enables you to link the Babylonian and the Persian periods with the rest of history. If you don't have that, 
we don't have a timeline of history, period. So they are desperate to hold on to uh, Ptolemy. Uh, the problem is, Ptolemy's records contradict, at least I believe, they contradict the biblical records, and they contradict virtually every secular chronology, ancient chronology, that is out there. Now, thankfully, the era of Ptolemy's dominance may be nearing its end because of a NASA study, of all things. Praise God for NASA. In 1978, NASA astronomer Robert Newton demonstrated that some of the eclipses that Ptolemy put on paper as they went backwards absolutely could not have been viewed anywhere in Babylon, and Ptolemy claimed that they were viewed in Babylon. And so, well, he, he came, what, more than 800 years after Cyrus. He was in the second century AD. So he's guessing the best that he can. But uh, So I, I take Ptolemy as uh, sincere, but this guy says Ptolemy fabricated some of those eclipses and it's crystal clear that they are fabricated, and if they're fabricated, he could be off by up to 100 years. So why do people not follow Robert Newton? They've tried to refute him, have not been able to do so. It is hard to overthrow an establishment position that is written into tens of thousands of publications and, and books. But anyway, I just want you to know up front, there is tons of biblical evidence, solid evidence for what I'm going to be presenting to you today. There's also solid secular evidence that dovetails completely with the Bible. I'm just disagreeing with the establishment record. That's the only thing. Now, one of the things that um, Creation Ministries International and many other people uh, have also been trying to show is that the Bible is not only precise on its chronology, it is precise in its terminology. It does not bounce back and forth. And here's one of the things that they point out. It is very precise in its use of the titles for Darius, uh, going from Darius the king to Darius being Ahasuerus to later in his reign becoming Artaxerxes. And we'll look in a bit at why that later title only came after he conquered the Greeks and was acknowledged by the Greeks as being their Artaxerxes. It's a, it's a Greek spelling. And the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther use the appropriate titles for each other in the three stages of, this, of his rule. Okay, so that's all by way of background. Um, let's, let's dig into the outline. The key word in this book is clearly the temple. It was a central focus to Ezra's book of Chronicles. It's a central focus to this one, too. It occurs 60 times in this book. This would be the temple of the house of God that Acts 2 says that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon in Pentecost. Why? Because the disciples were in one of the upper rooms. They never left the temple, according to Acts um, and so it was poured out upon them. As they left the temple, there's this stream of water that Ezekiel talks about, representing the Holy Spirit going out to the ends of the, uh, of the world. This is the same temple. Now it's beautified, it's expanded upon by, by Herod, but it is the same, uh, the same temple. Ezra built it according to the precise directions that were given to him by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40 through 46. Now I know there's a lot of controversy on that too. I'm not going to get into that, but he did. The setting up of the temple was a very significant event in redemptive history. And this word temple fits in with the central theme of the book, the reformation of the church. 
I've already mentioned, Nehemiah is going to focus on reformation in society. Ezra is going to be focusing on reformation within the church. Ezra will seek to bring the church back to the law of God, and he was successful. And I think one of the key phrases for understanding the book is the phrase repeated in Ezra 9, verse 4, and then again in chapter 10, verse 3. It speaks of those who, quote, trembled at the words of the God of Israel. It is the fear of God which is at the heart of true reformation. And Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi lament the fact that most of the people did not tremble at God's word. They did not have the fear of God. And so when this book shows by the end that the people are trembling at God's word, you see reformation has begun to happen in God's people. And then Elder Duff said that the key verse I put into your outlines is one of the Navigator's favorite verses. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He was not a violator of the law, as the Bible Project video says. No, he kept it, he understood it, he diligently applied it. And Pastor Duff says he's heard many, many sermons, Navigator sermons on that verse. It's a wonderful, marvelous text. Okay, the Christ of Ezra. Well, the Christ of Ezra can be seen in the temple, the altar, burnt offerings, uh, other sacrifices. It can also be seen in the festivals of tabernacles that occurred in this book, festival of Passover. But the image of Jesus that stands out in this book is Zerubbabel, the prince of Israel. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who had been released from prison. He's listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. And so what this signifies is that the Davidic covenant has not ended. He may not be a king, but he really, in many ways, stands as a much better symbol of Christ's kingship than previous kings did. Zerubbabel was like a second Moses, bringing Israel out of captivity and into the promised land. Zechariah had proclaimed that Zerubbabel would lay low the mountains, as Zechariah 4, 6 through 8. Haggai announced he would vanquish the kingdoms of the world. What a marvelous symbol of Jesus. Um, he said that, that um, Zerubbabel was a signet ring on God's finger, Haggai 2, 21 through 23. And one of his assignments was to engage in the impossible task of rebuilding the temple in less than five years. Wow, that's astounding. I mean, it's almost like a miracle that took place, and he was overwhelmed. He didn't think he could do it, and so the prophets say, you can. God's going to help you to do this. He's going to take away all of the mountains. Haggai 2, 6 through 9 uses that temple to point to the greater temple, Jesus. See, Jesus is the final temple who made obsolete the other temple. He is the final sacrifice who made obsolete all of the other sacrifices. And likewise, just as Zerubbabel chased away the wolves of false religionists in Ezra chapter 4, Jesus casts out all impostors and creates for himself a beautiful temple, a bride without spot or wrinkle. So I think Zerubbabel is a marvelous image of Jesus. That's all I'm going to say on him. Let me give you a panoramic view of the book. We've already read verse 1, but let me read verses 1 through 3 again. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord of the God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. 
in Judah, excuse me, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of this place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now that little paragraph is absolutely loaded with theological and practical implications which we cannot get into this morning. I'm just going to mention that it's a marvelous fulfillment of prophecy. 1,000 years before this was fulfilled, God had prophesied in Leviticus chapter 26 that Israel would in the future be exiled and then would come back into the land. Now you can understand that would be easy to prophesy that they're going to be exiled. But to come back into the land, that's a remarkable prophecy. 170 years before this, Isaiah had predicted not only that Israel would come back into the land, but he named exactly who the emperor would be who would bring them back into the land. He named him Cyrus. And that's who does it, right? And it gives other uh, very detailed prophecies about Cyrus. I'm going to only read three verses. I wish I could read the whole section. It's, it's just a marvelous prophecy. But let me read you. Isaiah 44, verse 26 through 28. This is about Cyrus, he says, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now keep those three verses in mind when you run across dispensationalists who absolutely insist that the decree to build Jerusalem did not happen until Artaxerxes long a menace. Uh, it messes up their, their dispensational flowchart, you know, they got this big long chart that they've all laid out. But no, here it's right, very crystal clear that Cyrus himself decreed the building of the walls. By the way, if you read in Josephus, he had the actual document that had been copied and copied, but he had the document of Cyrus, and he quotes from here, but he keeps on quoting, and it very specifically mentions that Cyrus decreed the building of the walls and the whole, the whole nine yards of Jerusalem. So the dispensationalists... Um, a claim that the decree does not come for another century is bogus. So Ezra 2, 1 through 3, is a fulfillment of astounding prophecies. And the fact that Cyrus made a decree for both the temple and the Jerusalem to be built knits the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together. That's one of the purposes of this first opening paragraph. It's saying, look, Ezra and Nehemiah belong together. Do not separate them. Okay, that's one of the purposes here. And there are many, many other indicators like that that the books together. Okay, chapter 1 then details a ton of temple furniture that's going to be brought back. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar had taken it all to Babylon. Now Cyrus is taking it all back to them. Chapter 2 then outlines the names of those who returned. Now, he adds it all up, and there's only 42,000 people who come back out of hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people in Babylon. Why did so few people come back? 
Well, we are told by Esther and the minor prophets that they cared more about their comforts than they did about the house of God. They cared more about their own kingdom than they did about God's kingdom. There was nothing new under heaven. When they arrived, chapter 3 shows that the very first thing they did was to build an altar at the place that was going to be uh, the temple. They loved the gospel of Jesus Christ that was portrayed in those sacrificial uh, sacrifices. And chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, indicates they never let the fire of the altar go out. There were perpetual sacrifices upon there to remind the people of God, without God's grace, we can do nothing. It's a beautiful symbol of the gospel if you want to study that for yourself sometime. Chapter 3 then ends with the finishing of the foundation, joyous celebration that they had laying the foundation of the temple. That was an event worth celebrating. Uh, let me read again chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now I want you to notice something sad in verses 12 through 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So verse 12 tells us there's a lot of these old guys, old men, who had seen the previous temple, and now they're weeping over it, and later we discover why they were weeping. They are saying, and the temple's not even built yet, they're saying, oh, this temple's never going to be as good as Solomon's temple. They're pouring cold water on this whole project. So this is one of many things that Satan used. He even used God's people. In Nehemiah, you see it, you see it here. He used God's people to try to take the wind out of the sails of Reformation that uh, were burning in the hearts of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it took inward strength to resist this, to not have the wind taken out of their sails. It's easy for us to give up when people try to discourage us. And the next chapters show us how not to. Okay, chapter 4 and following had far bigger discouragements. The enemies of these Jews tried every trick up their sleeve to put an end to the building of the temple. You might wonder, why would they care? You know, they could do their own thing, let these people worship and do their own thing. And some people say, well, maybe there was some political, uh, you know, threat that they felt from the temple. I don't see how that could be. I just chalk this up to the fact that they're children of Satan. Satan hates the Reformation that God is seeking to put forth here. And Jesus said that Satan can move his children anytime he wants to oppose his people. They, they, are, they are subject to his will. And this is why Paul says, look, when you're facing persecution, don't just chalk it up to the flesh and blood. Yes, they are opposing you, but why? It's because of demonic principalities and powers that are behind them. All the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, we have this enmity between God's people and uh, the, the unregenerate. 
God there predicted that the seed of Satan, that's unbelievers, would always be at enmity with the seed of the woman, that's the church. So, as was mentioned earlier today, don't be surprised if the world hates you. In fact, you ought to be surprised if the world doesn't hate you, right? So, look at Ezra 4, beginning to read at verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin... Keep in mind, he calls them adversaries. He calls them enemies. Okay, this is very important. They're going to make a sweet offer, acting like they're friends, but he says... When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said, Oh, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build of the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So their strategy was to infiltrate and what better way to infiltrate than to say, hey, we're one of you, you know, why don't we just join you in this project? Now, the Bible Project video makes Ezra out to be a meanie here, chasing away these people. This is contrary to God's purposes, who wants to reach the nations for, uh, for the gospel. And they paint him very bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. God himself says in verse 1, that they were adversaries already when they made this sweet, sweet offer. And then later we discover, oh, this wasn't so sweet. They hated them right from the start. And uh, they certainly were not interested in pure worship of God. 2 Kings 17, verse 33 is a key verse. 2 Kings 17, 33 describes exactly these people uh, that are mentioned here. And it says, they feared Jehovah, but served their own gods. They were syncretists. And their intent was a demonic attempt to compromise the worship of Israel. And both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show that Satan tries to plant false sons within the church of Jesus Christ. False sons so that they can cause trouble. And when that's not possible, they aggressively pursued other means, including legal challenges. Now let me introduce you to a riddle that has puzzled us conservatives for a long time. Okay, I'll give you my view on the verse first. Verse 5 summarizes all the opposition as coming between the reigns of Cyrus and Darius. A straightforward reading of the verse that I have in mind here, if I can find it. Okay, chapter 4, verse 5 and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, let's, let's talk about that. I believe that the next two verses are going to be telling you all of the opposition that occurred between those two emperors, Cyrus and Darius. Okay, um, there's two kings that come between them, and um, it's not something that comes later, and a straightforward reading of that verse would indicate that the opposition ended with the reign of Cyrus. 
It says, hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that's when it should end. In contrast, the establishment people say that Ahasuerus in verse 6 is Xerxes, the king after Darius, and the Artaxerxes in verse 7 is Artaxerxes Longamanus, the emperor after Xerxes. Then they're forced to say that verses 23 to 24 go backwards 64 years to Darius again. So they put it out of sequence. Now the problem with that, if you look forward to verse 23, is that it starts with a Hebrew word that indicates forward sequence. Okay? There, there can be no going backward. It's the Hebrew word adayin, which always indicates the next thing comes after the previous thing. Darius cannot, on anybody's chronology, come after Artaxerxes Longamanus, since everyone agrees that Longamanus is after Darius. So follow me here. Ezra has put an infallible guide in place to keep us from getting confused. And establishment people, to a man, ignore this word adayin. Okay, look at verse 24. It begins with a thus, which is uh, the exact same word, adayim, which means that verse 24 comes after verse 23. Makes sense. Should be translated as then. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. First, so is that same word. Could be translated as then. Doesn't have to be, but it could be. Then look at verse 4. The word then, same word, translated correctly as then. Uh, each event after every one of these verbs, and you can see this throughout the Bible, I've looked up every example of this, each time that word is used, whatever it's describing comes after the previous verses. Then look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then is the same word. So chapter 6, verse 1 is indicating the history of Darius being given in chapter 6 occurs after the history of Darius that occurs in chapter 5. Same is true of verse 13. Now, take a look at chapter 6, verse 15. It says, And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Now, our theory, that makes perfect sense. It is forward progression. On the establishment theory, there is a jumping back and forth. Then chapter 7 indicates that Ezra came up to beautify the newly built temple. When did he come up? Chapter 7, verse 8 indicates it was the next year. It was the seventh year of the king. Now, if that king is Darius, as I believe, that would make sense, since it would be within months of the temple's completion that Ezra comes up. But the establishment people say this is Artaxerxes Longamanus, which means that Ezra made the trip 58 years later. Now, in context, that really doesn't make sense of a number of grammatical things in the passage, but it doesn't make sense that he's preparing his heart. He hears that the temple's been finished. He prepares his heart now to beautify that temple, and then he waits 58 years. No, he prepares his heart for this temple and immediately leaves, and it's about a four-month month trip, and so he comes up uh, with, uh, takes about 800... Um, it's about 800 miles uh, of a trip. And on their view, he's making this trip as an old man, 121 years old, and his father is accompanying him. Floyd Nolan Jones has a respective alternative. He says that this Artaxerxes of chapter 7 is Xerxes during a co-regency with Darius. Now, initially, I was very intrigued with that, but there's a few things that fall apart. 
but I do respect his interpretation. Now, if chapter 7 is during the reign of Darius, and if Artaxerxes is Darius, as I and a number of chronologists believe, why does he use the title Artaxerxes? Because that's all it is. It is a title. It's the difference between king and emperor. Okay? And actually, the author had already clued us into the meaning by chapter 6, verse 14, that Darius was now going to be called Artaxerxes. We'll, we'll look at that in a bit. But why the change in titles? Because the author is using the appropriate titles for the different periods in Darius's reign. When Darius was still a military commander on the field, he was only a king among several other greater kings. He could only be called the king of Persia. He was not the king of an empire. But when he had captured all the kings and had won 19 battles against his internal adversaries, he took on the old Persian emperor title of Ahasuerus, why? Because he's now an emperor. And then once the Greek islands acknowledge his reign, he took on the title of Artaxerxes, mighty warriors, a flag of honor. That's a Greek title. And on this, a lot of us conservatives are agreed. But if you go back now to chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, there's still an enigma for uh, some of us conservatives. And let me read those verses. These are the strongest verses for the establishment view because it sure looks like it's talking about two kings after Darius and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the years of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Now, the establishment view says that Hasuerus is Xerxes, Artaxerxes is Artaxerxes Longamanus, but that seems to contradict verse 5 and certainly contradicts the sequence that we have already seen in the chapters. So, so far there are two plausible solutions that have been proposed. James Jordan, David Austin of Creation Ministries International, several others, have retranslated the Hebrew so that all three terms Darius, king of Persia, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes refer to the same person. He's a king, then later he becomes an Ahasuerus, then later he becomes an Artaxerxes. Um, it's definitely a legitimate translation of the Hebrew, and Darius definitely had all three titles at various stages. Now, I don't buy into that theory. I think it just doesn't seem to be what the text says. I think the older view is much more natural, and it doesn't require any mistranslation. So the older view is that verses 6 and 7 outline the opposition that occurred between the reigns of the two kings mentioned in verse 5, namely Cyrus and Darius. It makes sense of the grammar, the flow of the passage, and the time sequence indicators that we've seen in chapters 5 through 7. So my view is that Ahasuerus of verse 6 is the very next ruler after Cyrus, that would be Cambyses, and the Artaxerxes in verse 7 is the next king, pseudo Smerdis. And then it makes sense that the very next king mentioned in the same chapter is Darius. But either way you approach this, chapter 4, verse 5, makes it clear, opposition only lasted until the reign of Darius. So let me walk you through my understanding. In chapter 4, verse 6, the enemies of Israel lodged a complaint with Cambyses. Apparently that didn't go anywhere. And I've got good reasons why it couldn't go anywhere. He's not about to contradict an earlier decree. 
But the enemies don't give up. The moment Smyrtus takes over the empire by intrigue, these men petition him. Though Smyrtus doesn't reign very long, he only reigns for seven months, there's plenty of time to get the petition to him, for him to search in the archives, for him to write back a response to stop the project. And then Smyrtus, who held to a different religion than Cyrus, would have been very motivated to stop this temple. He felt no compulsion whatsoever to keep the laws of the Medes and the Persians. His usurper reign was a break in the Achaemenid Empire. And I'll only read verses 12 through 16 of the complaint, just give you a little bit of a feel for the spiritual dynamics of these accusers. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. So first they try to demonize the Jews, then they make an appeal to economics, next they try to make themselves look out to be, you know, the loyal subjects. We're only interested in the emperor's uh, welfare, what they really are is psychophants and leeches uh, who love their jobs. The complaint continues in verse 14, now because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, notice walls are completed, Many theories, the establishment theory says walls weren't even started till 91 years later. Right here is another hint. <laughs> if its walls are completed, the result will be that you ha will have no dominion beyond the river. So this was an attempt to provoke fear of losing power, and Smyrtus definitely had fear of losing power. His power base was very tenuous. So probably four or five months into his reign, he writes back in verses 17 through 22. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of his companions who dwell in Samaria, to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition has been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the herd of the kings? And so their perseverance and legal complaints eventually paid off. And God's enemies have constantly used these strategies, constantly. You slander, demonization, isolation, lawsuits, fear tactics. All you have to do is read the list of lawsuits that the ACLU and the Americans United uh, for the Separation of Church and State have made against churches. You see exactly the same. They keep suing, keep suing, even when they leave, lose. Keep suing, keep suing, hoping to eventually make some precedent that's going to push back the kingdom of God. Well, verses... 23 through 24, give the results of this demonic attack from Smyrtus. Now, and that's the Hebrew word, eddai, thereupon, 
Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until when? Until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, there's further confirmation of what I've been saying. If the work was discontinued as a result of the decree of these specific Artaxerxes that verses 17 through 22 talk about, it can't possibly be Artaxerxes Longamanus because he doesn't come after Darius. You see that? You've got to take all of these verses together and you ought to see the hermeneutical gymnastics that uh, the establishment uh, people use on that. And by the way, this is what makes me think James Jordan's interpretation of those two verses is not, uh, he's closer to the truth, but he's not right on that. The older view of verses 6 through 7, I think, is the correct one. So then comes chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells us that Darius has taken over the empire from the usurper, Pseudo-Smyrtus, but Pseudo-Smyrtus had the entire empire, and the entire empire is lost when Darius takes it over. Again, showing why. He's an Artaxerxes, but then Darius is not. He loses the empire. All he can control is a, a, a small portion. So the work had only been stopped for a short time. Based on the length of Pseudo-Smeritus' reign, the opposition could have only lasted in the range of months, not years, because he was only an emperor for seven months. But look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Ido, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So it's a new king, and these prophets tell the Israelites to ignore the opposition of the previous king. It was an unconstitutional command anyway. And so they had good basis for ignoring Smyrtus' decree. Based on Darius' support of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, Darius will surely support Cyrus, not Smyrtus. Smyrtus was overturning Achaemenid policies. So even what the various emperors did makes total sense on the conservative viewpoint. In verse, verses 6 to the end of the chapter is another letter from Tatani the governor. And uh, he apparently doesn't believe that Cyrus had ever given that command to the Jews. And uh, so his mentioning of the Jewish claim that Cyrus had done that was his fatal mistake in verse 13. Uh, because even though Smyrtus did not honor the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be annulled, Darius did. So Darius is not about to overturn a previously existing edict. He does a search. He tries to find out, did Cyrus do that? He realized, whoa, Cyrus did issue this edict. So Darius issues a strongly worded letter to Tatani that anybody who interfered with the work would be hung, and a whole bunch of other terrible things would happen to them. This is the laws of the Medes and the Persians, right? So that puts the fear of God into the governor, and he suddenly becomes very cooperative. Such threats are the only thing that some enemies of God seem to respond to. Now, on the back side of your outlines, I give a translation of chapter 6, verse 14, that removes the contradiction of that verse with the very next verse. This is the only verse in the whole book that needs to be retranslated, 
uh, for this particular theory. The second part of verse 14 should be translated, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius, parentheses, even Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So that reconciles with the next verse, makes it clear the temple was finished in the sixth year of the king, a reign of King Darius. So here's the point. There could hardly be a decree to build the temple way, way after Darius is dead if it was finished in the sixth year of Darius. So this verse is giving the first indicator that Darius will start being referred to from here on in as Artaxerxes. So chapter 6, verse 14, I think is a key um, verse that needs to be translated. Now why the change in titles? I've already mentioned this. Darius had been at war, consolidating his power up until this time. In chapter 4, he is only Darius, king of Persia. Why? Because he has not conquered a single one of the revolting provinces yet. He's not an emperor. Empire had fallen apart. By year three, Darius had regained the empire. He threw a massive feast in Esther chapter one and gains the title of emperor. That's the old Persian term, Ahasuerus. Okay, so he gains that title because now he is an emperor. He's trying to overawe them now with this magnificent feast. Um, but then he goes to war again, trying to gain the Greek states. In Darius's Behustun um, inscription, which was probably inscribed in his fifth year, he lists the countries that he has conquered, including the Greek states, uh, nations, and this may explain his taking on the Greek title of Artaxerxes. So here, what the writer is informing us is that there is a transition that has happened with Darius. He's no longer king of Persia, he's now the emperor. Chapter 7 gives the seventh year of his reign and starts calling him Artaxerxes. Okay, chapter 7 of Ezra is the same year that Esther marries Darius, 10 months after the temple is built. So just in terms of timeline, that puts some ideas in your head. Now, I know this has been plodding work uh, for some of you, but hopefully it'll enable us to spend all of our time on application of Nehemiah, Esther, and the minor prophets as well. But I do want you to notice something in, in chapter 6, verse 17 that uh, is a good verse to refer to for some cults. A lot of cults talk about, you know, the lost ten tribes of Israel. I want you to notice they're not so lost here. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So 12 tribes existed, and the genealogies, I think, show that as well. So British Israelism, the identity movement, does not have a leg to stand on. Chapter 7 records another long trip to Israel by Ezra, this time bringing some gifts to beautify the newly constructed temple. And um, chapter 8 lists the massive amount of silver, gold, and other precious articles, millions of dollars worth in today's dollars, uh, today's values. They would have been very easy targets for bandits on that 800-mile, extremely dangerous trip. But verses 21 through 23 say, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, 
And the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So they were able to get those millions of dollars worth of precious items from Babylon all the way to uh, Israel without any uh, problems. But if you add up all of the men, women, and children, there probably could not have been more than 5,000 returnees. And again, you might wonder, why would that be the case? Because Ezra had specifically gone to Babylon to bring back more people, as well as to bring back more gifts uh, for the temple. And again, it's because they were quite satisfied with life in Babylon. And despite the commands, and they are commands of the prophets, they stayed put. But God will soon heat things up in Babylon in the book of Esther and bring such crisis that it looks like the Jews are going to be exterminated off the face of the map by Haman, that wicked Agagite. Uh, he was an Amalekite, a descendant of the tribe within Amalek, uh, the Agagites. And uh, God has sworn perpetual war upon them. And when we get to Esther, we'll see that was the battle of Gog and Magog. But God will use those enemies to humble the Jews and bring them to enthusiastically support the temple. But before any of that can happen, there needs to be repentance and reformation within the land of Israel. And so Ezra 9 and 10 records this revival. Now, astoundingly, these people were marrying their enemies' daughters, okay? You really need to read the whole of chapter 9. I'm not going to take the time to read it. I love that chapter. It's one of the most moving chapters of repentance in the entire Bible. And when you read that, it gives you all kinds of instructions on how we can repent of sins on behalf of the church as a whole because of our covenantal identity with God's people. We can confess their sins as if they are our own sins, even if we've not personally committed them. Okay, It's covenantally taking ownership. As a result of Ezra's prayer, the majority of the people repent. Chapter 10 says, Now while Ezra was praying, while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Now, though the Bible Project video on this book accuses Ezra of violating God's law in chapters 9 through 10, it is the exact opposite. This chapter says that these people trembled at the commandment of God, that Ezra was to judge every case according to the law of God. And the text says the wrath of God was upon them until they did this. This was not a bad thing. This was a good thing. And people say, yeah, but what about 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Doesn't that say you should never divorce an unbelieving spouse? Actually, it does not say that. It does not say that. Ezra 9 through 10 is identical to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 actually gives a command to let the unbelieving spouse go. That's a synonym for divorce him if he is unwilling to dwell with a Christian. Now, you look up the Greek word and its meaning for to dwell with. It's the same thing that Ezra is talking about. There is a perfect reconciliation between the two. 
In Ezra 10, verses 14 through 16, it shows a case-by-case analysis of each couple to see whether the law would mandate a divorce. He did not mandate every person divorce their unbelieving wife. There were only specific certain cases in which that would be the case. If if everybody had to divorce their unbelieving wives, there would be no need for this lengthy interview process of each couple. So the conditions for divorcing an unbeliever were laid out in Exodus 21 and then the death penalty crimes of spouses who engaged in witchcraft, necromancy, temple prostitution, and other crimes. Here's my bottom line. Don't trust any book that cannot reconcile Ezra 9 through 10 with the New Testament. Bonson's view can, my view can, Rush Dooney's view can. So there's three different views of divorce and remarriage. It's a difficult subject that can reconcile those two, but the vast majority of books out there absolutely cannot reconcile the two. In fact, they speak evil of Exodus 9 through 10, and they say that the New Testament explicitly overthrows the law of God and completely makes a new standard for divorce and remarriage. The exact opposite is true. If you look up the context of every single major passage on divorce and remarriage in the New Testament, It upholds the law of God. Even Romans 7, you who know the law of God, don't you know the law says? It's it's an exposition of the law of God, and I won't get into that this morning. But in any case, the response of the godly remnant was not to blindly follow Ezra or any other leader. It was a genuine reformation before God, and let me prove it. They wept over their sins, verse 1. They put their hope in God's grace, verse 2. They recommitted themselves to the covenant, verse 3. They trembled at God's word, verse 3. They took an oath to follow God, verse 5. They fasted, verses 6 and following. They began taking antithesis seriously, verses 11 through 14. They rejected by name any who opposed God's word, verse 15. They diligently studied God's word for every case before them, verses 14 through 17. And they put God before their loved ones, verses 18, to the end of the book. I agree with Moorcraft. This was a remarkable reformation. Now, where Nehemiah is going to be concerned with holiness in society, this book is concerned with holiness in the church, and Esther wraps up, ties up the loose ends by showing God's providence at work to solidify this reformation for generations to come. As Daniel 11, verse 32 prophesied would happen, the stage would be set for a holy people who would know their God, be strong, and do great exploits for the kingdom. And we can praise God. He is at work, even today, to bring trials to test his people, and he is capable of bringing similar reformation. Don't lose heart. But realize that reformation starts with the brokenness of hearts that is displayed in chapters 9 through 10. May God's people prepare their hearts for reformation. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is a guide and a map for our feet, that these are books that we should cherish and not disagree with. These are books that we should follow and uh, not contradict. I pray that you would help us as a people to grow not only in our understanding of your word, but of our living out of your word. May Ezra's model be our model to understand your law, to seek to do it, and to seek to instruct others to do it. Bring reformation in our hearts, 
bring reformation to the church of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.